Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. And we begin this morning by asking the question, could you be at risk for an audit by the OIG and not know it? Implantable medical device credit reporting is in the crosshairs of the OIG. Moreover, the OIG is doubling down on non-compliers in hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers. Reporting our lead story this morning will be Michael Callahan. Meanwhile, the death toll from the deadly coronavirus is approaching 500,000, although there are reports that 42 million doses have been administered nationwide. In other news this morning, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink, Sandwick, and David Glazer. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Well, good morning, all. You know, my wife tells me I have a very expressive face, and it's easy to know what I'm thinking by watching me. She also warns me that if I keep rolling my eyes back, that one day they're going to stick there. Well, last week was a week of eye rolling for me. First, the General Accountability Office released a report on an audit they performed of medical care provided to VA patients. But the ludicrous part was not the audit results, but a statement in the audit. This audit report states, we conducted this performance audit from July 2019 through February 2021. Now, at first glance, that's fine until you realize they released the report in the morning on February 1st. How could they have both performed the audit in February and released the audit on the first day of that month? Then, Blue Cross of North Dakota released a notice last week that any claims for Medicare Advantage patients seen in North Dakota but who have out-of-state MA plans must have their claims submitted to the MA plan in North Dakota and not to the address on the card. Okay, it is what it is, but then they go on to give their address as a post office box in Plano, Texas. Once again, Q and I roll. Next, it should be noted that in January, Optum bought Change Healthcare, the company that produces intraqual guidelines. Then on February 1st, United Healthcare, a division of Optum, announced they were switching from MCG care guidelines to interqual on May 1st. I present this information to you with absolutely no commentary whatsoever. Next, I also noted last week that the new online pricer was available from CMS for inpatient stays. Well, this week I get to note that CMS also released a new version of their Medicare coverage database website. This is where you go to find an NCD or an LCD or a coverage analysis. And I'm happy to report that this new tool is much more user-friendly than the old version. Now, I wish there was an easy web address I could provide you, so it's best to find it by just Googling Medicare Coverage Database, and you'll find it. Finally, occasionally I hear things about troublesome billing areas that find their way to the auditors and result in denials. And one thing that seems to be getting a lot of attention these days is the use of the JW modifier. For those that don't know, when an injected drug is administered, if the amount in the vial is more than the dose needed for the patient and the excess is discarded, the provider can get paid for that wasted amount. 
but there must be proper documentation of the waste and the vial chosen must be appropriate. For example, if the patient needs 10 milligrams and there are 20 and 50 milligram vials, you can't use the 50 milligram vial and bill for 40 milligrams of waste. So listeners should go to their revenue integrity staff and ask them to take a look at their processes. And remember, the best denial is the one you prevented. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. Who here knows that, regardless of your innocence, that the government will recoup your funds preemptively at the third level of Medicare appeals? This flies in the face of the elements of due process. However, courts have ruled that the redetermination and the reconsideration levels afford providers enough due process because it entails notice and an opportunity to be heard. However, I'm here to tell you that that's a bit of horse manure. The first two levels of a Medicare appeal are hoops to jump through in order to get to an independent tribunal, the administrative law judge, the ALJ. The odds of winning at the first or second Medicare appeal is very close to not very much to zilch, although you can usually get the amount reduced. The first level is before the same entity that found that you owe the money and I have found that auditors are normally not keen on overturning themselves. The second level is not much better. So your first chance to be in front of an independent tribunal is at the third level. Well, between 2009 and 2014, the number of ALJ appeals increased more than 1,200%. And the government recoups all alleged overpayments before you ever get to an ALJ. A recent case, Sahara Healthcare versus Azar, it was a home healthcare provider that sued because they recouped, the government recouped $2.4 million in Medicare overpayments without providing a timely ALJ hearing. HHS moved to dismiss and won. The case was thrown out concluding that adequate process had been provided and that the government had not exceeded its statutory authority. So what's the law? Well, Congress has stepped in. Congress prohibits HHS from recouping payments during the first two stages of administrative review. You can find that at 42 USC 1395 FF. So why not the third level? Well, you can ask for if extreme hardship is existing, you can ask for a plan of repayment that cannot last longer than five years. However, this safety valve works against the smaller providers and those with less money because if there's a chance of bankruptcy, the government will not give you the hardship exception. Now, this is a Fifth Circuit Court opinion. The Fourth Circuit has completely uh, ruled against this. The Fourth Circuit has held that providers do have property interests in Medicare reimbursements owed for services rendered. This is the correct holding. So now we've got a battle of circuit appeals between the Fifth and the Fourth Circuit. And the Fourth Circuit is not the only circuit that has held that you do have a property interest. At some point, this is going to have to go up to the Supreme Court 
And I hope when it does that I'm there arguing this. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And you can read Nicole's reporting on the audits in the Auditor Monitor, so be sure to subscribe to the Auditor Monitor. And coming up at about uh, nine and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan Frigg-Samnick, David Glazer, and Michael Callahan, who's standing by to report our lead story. This is Monday. It's February the 8th, and you're listening to a live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Medical device credit reporting continues to be an easy mark for auditors, and now it's included in the OIG annual work plan. The OIG is looking at potential outlier payments related to implantable medical device credits in the outpatient space. You might not even be aware you've received these payments, which could put you at risk in an audit. Learn how to save your facility hundreds of thousands of dollars in potential repayments and fines by correctly following Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services requirements for these targeted services. Now, with many more devices to monitor, there are more credits to assess and more patient accounts to manage, potentially resulting in more errors and more audits. Register now for Implantable Medical Device Credit Reporting Still Under Fire. Avoid Getting Burned. The webcast is this Thursday, February 11th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday morning, what could possibly be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So a few weeks ago, one of the multi-specialty clinics I worked with received a letter from a private insurer demanding about $350,000 for psychiatry services provided by one physician. Now, this letter offers a veritable plethora of lessons about how to ap- approach overpayment demands from private insurers. So the insurer claimed that the physician's note was not sufficient to support the billing of both an evaluation and management service and a therapy encounter. As I read the letter, I wondered, hmm, what standards exist detailing the documentation expectations for separate therapy bills? I wasn't aware of any clear published standards. Fortunately, the insurer provided all the information we needed to know in the attachments to the letter. First, they had a handy chart detailing the elements that they believed were required, yet absent. These included goals, progress or therapy, target symptoms, or targeted symptoms, I suppose, interventions and a treatment plan, as well as the need for continued treatment. The insurer complained that only the intervention used appeared in the documentation. Thinking it supported their claim, the payer also included an article entitled, How to Document Psychotherapy Sessions. Now, my first thought was that I would need to be explaining to the insurer that they aren't entitled to rely on random articles to impose requirements on one of their contacted providers. It turns out I didn't need to make that argument because here is the opening sentence of the article. And I quote, although there are no official guidelines for documenting psychotherapy notes in a patient's medical record, Providing such documentation is as important as providing it for evaluation and management services. So the insurer sent us an article confirming that there are no official documentation guidelines for the services in question. That was just the first way that they made my job easier. They also included a copy of their policy on behavioral health. Now, since they claimed that documentation needed to include things like goals, 
target symptoms, their word, not mine, interventions in a treatment plan, I took an electronic version of the insurer's policy and started doing a word search so I could see the detailed requirements. But I totally struck out. The policy included nary a mention of any of those requirements. And you can imagine I'm putting air quotes around the requirements. Finally, the letter sought an overpayment for the last three years worth of claims. So I grabbed the client's contract with the insurer. Actually, I didn't even need to because I knew this insurer pretty well. Guess what? There is a provision limiting the recovery of overpayments to 12 months. They were completely disregarding the terms of their own contract. So this insurer is seeking over $300,000, but they're entitled to a big goose egg. So what are the lessons? When someone asserts an overpayment, first, make sure they have the contractual right to do so. Second, make sure they're applying an actual standard imposed via contract or some very clear and binding professional standards. Look at their policy and see if they're following it. And figure out if the policy is imposed via contract. Finally, scour that policy and make sure that whatever requirements they're purporting to impose are really, really there. So for my song, I'm going to try not to be quite as in-your-face about it as MC Hammer. But my message to the insurer is going to be a slightly toned-down version of, yo, found the bell, school's in, sucker, and you can't touch this. You can't touch this. Break it down. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fedrick's Environment in downtown Minneapolis, where the temperature is now minus eight degrees. Stop. Hammer time. Here now with the very latest news on the social determines our health is Alan Fink-Samson. Alan also has a Modern Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. Well, it may just be February, but a steady stream of reports and surveys touting the top social determinants of health and mental health for 2021 have already begun to appear. First up is the 2021 Annual Consumer Sentiments and Insights Survey by the Root Cause Coalition an organization co-founded by AARP Foundation and ProMedica. The survey was conducted online last October with 1,200 U.S. residents, 18 years of age or older, and across the following ethnic groups. 16% identified as Latinx, 19% African American, and 65% Caucasian. Income levels of those surveys ranged from under $50,000 a year annually, so just over the poverty level, to over $100,000 a year, with respondents residing across rural, suburban, and urban regions of the country. In terms of the most important social determinants to impact overall family health and wellness, 30% of respondents identified economic stability as the most important. 27% ranked access to quality health care the most impactful. 16%, one-six, tagged educational opportunity and attainment, while 14% cited safety of their neighborhood and environment. Finally, 13% said community context or social isolation played the largest role. Survey participants were also queried on which social determinants contribute the most to achieving their personal health and wellness. The top three areas identified were access to quality health care, affordable and nutritious foods, and stable and affordable housing. 
The survey was directed toward the lay community, which resulted in interesting, if not ironic, findings. Only 20% of the respondents knew what the social determinants of health even referred to, and 48% had never heard of the term. Over 65% were, however, familiar with the term health equity. Most of the persons surveyed believe that people with low incomes under $50,000 a year annually are most at risk for the social determinant, especially persons who are Latinx, over 55 years of age, and live in suburban areas. Other areas identified as key for society's attention in the survey included job opportunities, which ranked as a high priority among African-Americans surveyed, prescription medicines and medical devices as seen as vital by older adults and Latinx respondents, and rural respondents were most concerned about clean water and air. A final survey area asked respondents who they felt had ultimate responsibility for addressing health disparities aligned with the SGOH. And I know my colleague, Matthew Albright, will be listening to this one. While close to half of those persons saw this issue surveyed, saw this issue as a shared responsibility by federal government agencies at 42% and local, state, and federal policymakers at 40%, another 20% viewed public health departments as having a priority role. 59% of respondents also believe that each individual bears the primary responsibility for the health and well-being of their greater community. Now, if they had a greater say in paying for it. These last questions serve as a solid place to leverage today's Monitor Monday survey. Who do you feel has the major responsibility for addressing the social determinants of health and mental health? federal government agencies, local, state, federal policymakers, public health departments, or another entity. Well, we'll see what the results yield. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. That was consultant and author, Ellen Fink-Sandwich. And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Here now with the Monitor Monday legislative update is Matthew Albright. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning, Chuck. It looks like the Democrats are going to go it alone on the nearly $2 trillion COVID relief package. The Democrat majority in both the House and Senate passed measures on Friday that clears the way for Biden's COVID relief package to be passed via the budget reconciliation process, which requires only a one-vote majority in the Senate. So while the votes on Friday make it so the Democrats don't need Republican support to pass the package, there is still time and room in the process for Republicans to make their mark. The package has to make its way through various committees, and the earliest it could get signed into law would be the third week in February. The goal of the Democrats is to pass the law before mid-March when the expanded unemployment benefits expire. As the package winds through committees and perhaps bounces back and forth between the House and the Senate, there are elements of the package that could be changed or removed. For instance, the $15 national minimum wage and the question of whether the income level to receive direct checks should be lowered. But again, we won't see passage of the package for a number of weeks. Also on Friday, Friday, Biden announced his plans to utilize the Defense Production Act to get more vaccines and tests distributed, including over 60 million rapid COVID tests that provide results within minutes of being administered. The plan also includes ramping up production of surgical gloves and sending 1,000 military personnel to help with mass vaccination sites. 
The Defense Production Act, which was passed at the beginning of the Korean War, does three things. It provides certain orders for materials from the government to U.S. industry to be prioritized. It offers financial incentives for U.S. companies to complete those orders. And it provides antitrust protection to allow businesses to cooperate more closely with the government. On another front, the Biden administration announced that the CDC may be coming out as early as this Wednesday with requirements that schools should meet before they reopen. This is a sticky subject, as many of you know, with a number of large city teachers unions disagreeing with plans to bring children back to the classroom. Biden has hinted that the requirements will include allowing fewer children in the classrooms and a revamping of the school's ventilation systems. Biden had vowed to get children back into school within his administration's first 100 days, but new variations of COVID may be an obstacle to that goal. Finally, a word about COVID vaccination reimbursement for providers. As most of you know, so far, the government has paid for the vaccines, so providers don't charge either the patients or private insurance for the shots themselves. Providers can, however, charge an administration fee. CMS has set a Medicare rate for the administration fee and has suggested that the Medicare rate is also an appropriate amount to charge a patient's private insurance. However, be aware that some states are passing their own requirements on vaccine administration fees. For instance, Massachusetts requires that providers be paid two times the Medicare rate for administration of the two-dose vaccine. Chuck, not only is every week a busy week in Washington, but many of the state legislators are back in business for the year and passing their own COVID and healthcare-related bills. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And coming up next, our exclusive report on why you might be noncompliant and not even know it. This is Monitor Monday. It's a broadcast service of Rack Monitor. Stand by. Here's important information about the healthcare publication focused on third-party auditors. It's the Auditor Monitor. In the next edition of Auditor Monitor, you'll read about a subject once considered unthinkable, the realities of care rationing amid COVID-19. With the surge has come limited and then non-existent ICU capacity, especially in hard-hit college towns across the country, according to multiple reports. That's leading to a renewal of discussions over the ethics of rationing care no longer a hypothetical, but in some cases an imperative. Learn about the implications of rationing care in the upcoming edition of the Auditor Monitor. You'll also read about upcoming RAC targets underway during the first quarter of 2021. Not a subscriber? Here's your chance to have your own edition of the Auditor Monitor. Go to the RAC University bookstore, order a subscription today, and start receiving your edition of the Auditor Monitor. As mentioned at the top of the broadcast, you could be at risk for an audit by the OIG. Implantable medical device credit reporting is in the crosshairs of the OIG. Here now to report our lead story this morning is Michael Cohen. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you very much. And the answer to your question is yes, you could be uh, in trouble and not know it. As you hinted, problems do continue in this evergreen area, compounded by continuous auditing activity by the OIG on two fronts auditing for the device credit uh, errors themselves, as well as auditing related outlier payments based on claims that carry a device credit. You know, I first appeared on Rack Monitor Mondays, January 7th, 2013. That's eight years ago. For this very topic, 
at which time the OIG was being pretty aggressive in their efforts, and they've never slowed down. So let's take a, a quick meander through the topic. Errors in the implantable medical device credit reporting space continue to cost providers lots of money in repayments and fines, as well as in lost revenues. And those lost revenues are corrected claims that you want to send back in, but you're outside of timely filing. So you lose the, the reimbursement. Nearly all providers, and here we're talking about the basic provider triad of inpatient, outpatient, and ASC, that do device-intensive procedures in orthopedics, in ophthalmology, and neurosurgery, otolaryngology, and of course, in cardiovascular procedures involving the more ubiquitous device systems, such as pacemakers and ICDs. Well, those providers often do receive device warranty credits for replacement devices, but also in clinical trials and research, they can receive free or upfront credited 100% uh, free initially placed devices. That is a new, patient, new device for the patient which is rare, but it does happen. And of course, you have to know how to properly manage that scenario as well as the replacement scenarios. So knowing which devices get reported when receiving credits, as well as knowing when and how to report those credits, then that becomes paramount in managing and staying compliant with these federal guidelines, which all would seem to be a very straightforward process from a casual read-through of the guidelines. However, as one OIG auditor dryly put it to me many years ago, there's basically no facility we step into in which we do not find device credit errors. And of course, a good witness to this fact can be found in the bevy of OIG reports that have been published over the years, both those tar with targeted audits conducted just for device credits, as well as general hospital billing compliance audits in which the device credits get swept in with a number of topics and now the newest edition, which is related outlier payment audits. And personally speaking, from our own national consulting work here at Healthcare Consulting Solutions, the firm that I work with, this has been a perennial consulting focus going all the way back to 2011. Managing device credit is one of those endeavors that requires all hands on deck because it touches on various departments and cannot be left up to just one or two trusted staff. This requires protocols that everyone must follow and know, requires education and training, requires intense follow-up and tracking that involves your entire facility beginning in the clinical areas and then migrating right through to supply chain, accounts payable, billing or revenue cycle. So it's a quite an expansive workflow process. So this Thursday, February 11th at 1.30 uh, p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Please tune in for my RAC Monitor webcast on this topic and what's become sort of an annual right, uh, during which I do disaggregate inpatient from outpatient from ASC to review and correctly apply all the required guidelines. Because facilities and surgery centers can be organized so differently, even those within the same health system, I do briefly uh, also cover uh, best practices uh, for, um, for your, for your uh, facility, as well as craft uh, policy and procedures, show you how to craft policy and procedures that can be adapted to your own unique needs. And with that, Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Michael, very much. That was Michael Callahan. Michael is the Vice President of Hospital and Physician Compliance with Healthcare Consulting Solutions. And you can read his story on this current topic in the RAC Monitor. Also, be sure to register for his exclusive webcast on this very subject. It's coming this Thursday here at Rack Monitor. Now it's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Alan. 
Thank you, Chuck. Well, as always, our Monitor Monday listeners have lots of input regarding the topics on the social determinants of health. Who do you feel has the major responsibility for addressing the SDOH? 23% of you said federal government agencies, but the majority of you went with local, state, federal policymakers at almost half, 45% of listeners. Public health departments got 25%. Another entity, hmm, to be named, 6.7%. We will clearly watch this story over time and see how it continues to evolve. Back to you, Chuck. Now's the time for our Monitor Monday Q&A. And David, we have a number of questions, but let's answer the question from Matt. Matt? Uh, wants to ask Nicole a question. Hey, Nicole, can you repeat the CFR section about recruitment in the first two levels of CMS appeals? I can. It's 42 USC section 1395 FF. And then in parentheses, it's F2 capital A. And I also want to mention, because I did not get a chance to say it, that if you do end up having to go ahead and pay prematurely before the third level, you can get back that money with interest. And that is 42 USC 1395 DDDF2B. Thanks, Nicole. And the interest rate charged by the government is high. So if you do think you're going to lose, actually, uh, paying back can be good because you'll get a good rate of return on that. So that's an excellent point. Exactly. Uh, Chuck, I turn it back to you. Thanks, David and Nicole. Thank you very much. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And we thank you so very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Alan Finksamnick, Ronald Hirsch, and Michael Callahan, who reported our lead story. And we thank you again for being with us. When we are not on the air, you can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. And remember to... One, wear your face mask. Two, wash your hands. Practice social distancing. And be sure to get vaccinated. It's very dangerous out there, but thanks for being with us today. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Monitor.